Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Happening now, breaking news. Doctors for Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin revealing he has prostate cancer. We have details on his condition and the surgery complications behind his controversial hospitalization. We're also following a critical test for Donald Trump's claims of presidential immunity from prosecution. Three federal judges hearing Trump's argument, appearing deeply skeptical of the theory. This hour, we're breaking down all the courtroom drama and what comes next for the case. Plus, as Republican presidential candidates sprint toward the finish in Iowa, we have a new CNN poll on the race in New Hampshire. Is Nikki Haley closing the gap with frontrunner Donald Trump? Welcome to our viewers here in the United States and around the world. I'm Wolf Blitzer. You're in the Situation Room. This is CNN Breaking News. All right, let's get straight to the breaking news. Doctors for Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin revealing complications from prostate cancer surgery were the cause of his undisclosed hospitalization last week. CNN is covering the story from every angle over at the Pentagon and at the White House, where our senior White House correspondent MJ Lee is standing by. First, let's go to our national security reporter, Natasha Bertrand. Natasha, what is the Pentagon saying? Well, Wolf, after days of uncertainty surrounding Secretary Austin's hospitalization last week and just what prompted it, the Pentagon did relay a statement from Secretary Austin's doctors just today at around 2 p.m. that revealed that Secretary Austin had undergone surgery for prostate cancer uh, on December 22nd. And that surgery is what led to those complications that resulted in Austin needing to be transported in, a, in an ambulance to Walter Reed Medical Center last week. Now, in this statement from Austin, Austin's doctors. They said, quote, that his prostate cancer was detected early and his prognosis is excellent. But they said on January 1st, last Monday, he was admitted to Walter Reed Medical Center with complications from that procedure, including nausea with severe abdominal hip and leg pain. An initial evaluation uh, from that revealed that it was a urinary tract infection. That infection has since cleared. It involved uh, various complications about, uh, regarding abdominal fluid that was ultimately drained. Uh, a rare complication that an oncologist told CNN happen really in less than 1% of instances resulting from these kinds of prostate cancer uh, surgeries. But the White House, or I should say the Pentagon, still has not revealed uh, just why uh, the White House was not made aware of Secretary Austin's prostate cancer diagnosis until today. And when uh, Pentagon Press Secretary General Ryder was asked today who's uh, idea it was not to inform the White House until nearly a month later that Secretary Austin had been diagnosed with cancer, he dodged uh, a response to that question. Here's what he said. When this happened in December, whose decision was it not to alert the president that the defense secretary had prostate cancer? Um, again, you know, as far as uh, the situation um, in terms of, of what the elective surgery was and the secretary's condition, 
um, we're providing that information to you as we've received it. Um, we received that this afternoon and, and we're providing it to you now. Now, the Pentagon acknowledges that there have been serious shortfalls in just how the notification process uh, was conducted when Secretary Austin was transported to the hospital last week. The White House was not aware that he was even in the hospital until about three days after he was first admitted. And they now say that they are conducting a 30-day review to go over those processes and see whether anything needs to be changed. But many questions remain, Wolf, about why uh, this cancer diagnosis was kept from White House from the President of the United States for so long, given, of course, uh, the secretary's very, very key position in the cabinet. Let's head over to the White House right now. MJ Lee is standing by. MJ, when was President Biden notified? Well, Wolf, uh, not only do we now have many more details about Secretary Austin's medical condition, we also now know so much more about what the White House and President Biden really uh, did not know. President Biden, we are told, uh, only learned about Secretary Austin's prostate cancer diagnosis this morning. This, of course, follows the president only finding out last Thursday uh, that he had been hospitalized. This was at least three full days uh, after Secretary Austin had been sent to Walter Reed. Uh, this means that the White House just simply did not know in real time uh, that the President's Secretary of Defense had undergone surgery uh, under general anesthesia and had been hospitalized because of complications, uh, all while uh, there were some very serious and sensitive national security matters uh, before this White House. Now, the White House is making pretty clear, and they acknowledge that clearly there were some issues, some problems uh, with the lack of transparency here. And one question, Wolf, that I just asked John Kirby, uh, in the White House press briefing was whether now that the president does know uh, what the medical condition is that Secretary Austin was being treated for, whether the president himself uh, believes that he should have been afforded the privacy to keep that detail private. This is what he said. Nobody at the White House knew that Secretary Austin had prostate cancer until this morning, and the president was informed immediately after. The president believes in, and has since the beginning of the administration that transparency with the American people is really important. Um, and he knows, being a public figure for his entire life, that as a public figure, um, you have uh, an added burden to be as transparent about your personal situation as possible. And this transparency is the reason why Chief of Staff Jeff Zients has sent out this memo earlier today to all of the cabinet officials and all of the different agencies saying, uh, you have a couple of days to basically send to me the protocols that are in place at every agency so that they can be reviewed to make sure that they are uh, appropriate. And there was a reminder in that memo that when there is a situation where, where a cabinet official is basically out of commission, including being hospitalized like Secretary Austin was, that certain protocols calls need to be followed in terms of delegation of authority. But Wolf, for now, uh, the White House is emphasizing that the president does continue to have full confidence in Secretary Austin. MJ Lee over at the White House, Natasha Bertrand at the Pentagon. Thanks to both of you for that update. I want to get some more now from the dean of the Brown University School of Public Health, Dr. Ashish Jha. Dr. Jha, thank you so much for joining us. How serious is this prostate cancer diagnosis for Secretary Austin? Yeah, so well, thanks for having me back. Um, very, very common uh, cause of cancer, number one cause of cancer uh, among men. Uh, the good news is if you catch it early and you do the surgery that he had, uh, he should be cured. Uh, again, we don't know all the details of his cancer, particularly uh, it's a serious cancer, but if caught early and treated effectively, uh, he should be uh, cured from the cancer. What could the fact that he uh, was readmitted to the hospital last week mean? 
Yeah, so there's a lot of details we don't know, Wolf. Uh, he what appears that he underwent a prostatectomy, very common surgery. About 100,000 American men go through that every year. Um, most of the times there are no major complications. About 1%, 2% of the times we do see infections or bleeding or a urinary leak or something uh, that can land people back in the hospital. Seems like, unfortunately, Secretary Austin was in that very low you know, rate of people. And we don't know the details of exactly what happened that landed him back in. Is there any reason uh, that Secretary Austin wouldn't be able to serve, wouldn't be able to continue to serve as defense secretary during his upcoming treatment? No, look, as long as, and it appears from what we've heard from his doctors that the, the complications are getting treated. Uh, these are very treatable complications. He's going to get antibiotics, he's going to get the fluid drained. All of that should be fully successful and in the right place, and obviously Walter Reed is a terrific place in terms of a place to get care, in the right place, this should be very treatable. He should be able to get back to work quite effectively. How much greater is the risk for African-American men for prostate cancer? It's a great question, Wolf. It is absolutely true that African-American men uh, get prostate cancer at higher rates. They get more aggressive types of prostate cancer. Uh, they're more likely to get sick and die from prostate cancer. Um, again, from what we know about Secretary Austin, thankfully, it looks like it was caught early uh, and treated effectively. And, and assuming that that's all correct, uh, he really should be in the free and clear from this uh, from this cancer. Dr. Zha, when should men start getting screened for prostate cancer and at what age are they most at risk? Yeah, you know, it, as men get older, they will develop uh, bigger you know, prostates, get bigger. People notice this. They're going to the bathroom more often. Uh, some proportion of men will go on to develop prostate cancer. Uh, there's still some controversy of when to get start getting screened by PSA or other methods. Certainly men over the age of 50 are starting to develop higher and higher risks. Family history matters. Uh, we've talked about other risk factors. Uh, it's a really important cancer, and I think early diagnosis is the key to making sure people uh, get treated effectively. That PSA test, uh, how, it's, it's becoming a bit, a bit controversial. What's your recommendation? Yeah, it is controversial, Wolf. And I and look, the, the issue is that if you screen lots of people who are low risk, some of them are going to have elevated PSAs and you'll end up doing unnecessary surgery, which can have complications, as we have found out. So that's the controversy here. I certainly think anybody who's at elevated risk, who's got a family history, um, they absolutely should be getting screened. For the average male, uh, it's a conversation between you and your physician weighing the risks and benefits. I've had those conversations with patients. Some choose to get it, some choose not to. I think both are reasonable for people who are average risk. Dr. Ashish Jha, thanks so much for your expertise. Thank you. Coming up, uh, former President Donald Trump was in the D.C. courtroom today as his lawyers argue that he's immune from prosecution. But are the federal judges buying that argument? Plus, why only one Republican presidential candidate is campaigning in Iowa today with less than one week until the Iowa caucuses. Stay with us. You're in the Situation Room. In Washington today, a panel of federal judges sharply tested Donald Trump's claims of presidential immunity as the special counsel's team urged the court to reject the former president's arguments. Our senior justice correspondent, Evan Perez, is uh, with us here in the situation. You were in the courtroom for that entire proceeding today. Yeah. The judges, I take it, appeared to be deeply skeptical of Trump's lawyers' arguments? Uh, there was a lot of skepticism. And by the way, Wolf, uh, the, the former president did not have to be at this proceeding. It's very unusual for def criminal defendants to even show up to an oral argument like this. But the former president was in there, 
and he heard his 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 lawyers, uh, John Sauer and, and his legal team there, putting forward uh, their argument that he has this immunity because of the the allegations uh, that are, that he stands accused of. That those all occurred while he was uh, b while he was president of the United States. And uh, what you heard from the ju judges were, was really a test. They were trying to test how far how far do they stretch this idea of immunity. And here's an exchange uh, between uh, Judge Pan and uh, John Sauer, uh, uh, the uh, Trump attorney, that really shows how far they tested this. Could a president order SEAL Team Six to assassinate a political rival? That's an official act in order to seal Team Six. He, he would have to be and would speedily be, you know, uh, uh, impeached and convicted before the criminal what prosecution. If what if he weren't? There would be no criminal prosecution, no criminal liability for that. Chief Justice's opinion in Marbury against Madison and uh, uh, and our Constitution tradition and the plain language of the impeachment judgment clause all clearly presuppose that what the founders were concerned about was not. I asked you a yes or yes or no question. Could a president who ordered SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival who was not impeached, would he be subject to criminal prosecution? If he were impeached and convicted first. And so, so, so your answer is, is no. Is, my answer is qualified yes. And that was, uh, that was Judge uh, Florence Pan. She, uh, she really cornered uh, John Sauer to finally say that there is a possibility for a president to be prosecuted. And as I mentioned, Evan, you were inside that proceeding. You watched it very closely. You had a good seat inside that courtroom. Uh, and you noticed how Trump was reacting to what was going on. Right. Share a little bit of that. Well, he was pretty subdued, especially at the beginning of the, of the proceeding. But once the, the government uh, began doing their part of this, uh, uh, James Pierce was the government attorney uh, for the special counsel's office. He started taking notes. He started passing notes to John Sauer, his attorney. Uh, there were periods where he nodded very, very visibly uh, to what Sauer was arguing, especially when he was pushing back on this idea that for the, 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 the former president seemed to be very animated when Sauer was making the point that Trump is not accused of doing anything that is outside of his uh, time in office. So what happens next? Well, this is a three-judge panel, Wolf. Uh, this uh, One of them is a, a Republican appointee. The other two are Democratic uh, appointees. And so we expect that they're going to be writing their, their opinion. And then we're going to see it possibly in the next week or two. And then, uh, of course, whoever loses, uh, it's possible that they will try to bring this to the Supreme Court. These are obviously very weighty questions, constitutional questions. And for the former president, uh, the stakes are very high because obviously we have a trial that is due to start in March. And we'll see whether that can, can even happen with this still uh, pending. Very historic and very significant. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Evan Perez, reporting for us. I want to bring in our legal experts for some analysis right now. Ellie Honig, give us your read on the Trump team's arguments today. Do the judges have reason to be deeply skeptical? I think they do, Wolf. And after listening to the entire argument today, it's hard for me to envision any universe where two of those three judges come back in favor of Donald Trump. And here's why. Because Donald Trump's lawyers today locked themselves into a really unusual and I think ultimately untenable legal position. Their position is a president or former president can only be criminally prosecuted if he has first been impeached by the House and then convicted by the Senate. On one hand, there's just no legal support for that. It's creative, it's inventive, but I don't see anything that they base that on legally. And moreover, it leads to preposterous results like we see with that SEAL Team 6 example. If you're arguing 
that a president could potentially order the assassination, but he can't be prosecuted unless he's been impeached and convicted. That's just a ridiculous result. And judges take that into account. So I'd be very, very surprised if this comes out in Trump's favor. I think the judges are going to reject this immunity claim. Well, let me follow up with Karen Friedman and Agnafillo. Uh, Karen, from what you heard today, do you think the judges will reject Trump's immunity bid? Yeah, absolutely. And, and as Ellie was pointing out just now, it was what what the lawyer, what Judge Pan did was lock Trump's lawyer into conceding that there is no just fulsome presidential immunity for criminal prosecution the way Trump likes to say and has argued before that what they're saying is, no, there is no such thing as this complete presidential immunity. So I do think that that's what they are going to find how quickly they do it and then how quickly this gets to the Supreme Court is a whole other story because obviously getting this case to trial is really what the special counsel is trying to do. And we all know that Trump's team is trying to delay that. Delay, delay, delay. That's their, their motive right now. Elena Treen, you're with us as well. As you know, Trump left the courtroom very defiant. What was his message? Right. Well, Wolf, uh, he was very defiant and he also uh, deployed the same strategy we've seen him use in the past, which is to argue that he did nothing wrong uh, and that he is a victim of political persecution. But look, I want to point out, uh, and Evan made this point, Donald Trump did not have to show up today. That was his choice. And part of that reason is because this case, um, he cares deeply about the arguments that his lawyers made in the courtroom today. He really genuinely believes that uh, he is immune from these charges because he was president at the time. But the other part of it is the political strategy. And Donald Trump wanted to control the media narrative around this. And that's why you saw his team scramble to set up uh, this media availability with him and have him speak to the press directly. Uh, and part of that message of what he said was, look, um, I am immune. I was immune. I was president at the time. And he also argued that this would set a bad precedent for future presidents. Take a listen to what he said. This is the way they're going to try and win. And that's not the way it goes. That'll be bedlam in the country. It's a very bad thing. It's a very bad precedent. As we said, it's the opening of a Pandora's box. And that's a very, that's a very sad thing. I feel that as a president, you have to have immunity. Very simple. And if you don't, as an example, if uh, this case were lost on immunity and I did nothing wrong, absolutely nothing wrong. So as you can hear him there, Wolf, uh, insisting he did absolutely nothing wrong. And again, really pushing this notion uh, that he is immune and that he thinks that this could open a Pandora's box um, in the future for others who may find themselves uh, facing criminal prosecution um, after being president. And warning that there would be bedlam, his word bedlam, right. if he loses this case. Ellie, the court has already moved this case along at a very fast pace. How soon could the judges rule? Well, Wolf, I think we will definitely see a ruling by the end of this month, possibly within the next week or so. And when that happens, after that happens, I think we're going to see movement up and down in terms of the legal pyramid here. Upwards, I think whoever loses here is almost certainly going to ask the Supreme Court to review the case. Open question as to whether they take it. But then downwards, this is really important too. We heard Jack Smith's team today urging the Court of Appeals to, quote, issue the mandate. And what that means is Jack Smith's team is saying, within a few days of ruling on this Court of Appeals, we want you to send this back down to the district court, the trial court, so that they can unfreeze, they've been on pause basically, and resume preparing for trial. So we're gonna see a lot of movement both ways on this very soon. Well, let me get Karen to weigh in. To Ellie's point, Karen, where do you think this case will go next? How likely is it that the U.S. Supreme Court would take this on? 
I think that uh, they have a lot to do right now with Trump. This wouldn't be the only case, right, involving Trump that they're hearing. And they they put the Colorado disqualification on the docket very quickly. And so I think they are, they are moving quickly with respect to Trump cases. And I think uh, it just depends on how quickly Trump gets his uh, filing in, his petition for certiorari, and, and whether or not he delays in getting it to them. He has a couple of months to do that. Elena, this was uh, one major stop in Trump's very packed calendar this week. He's heading to Iowa tomorrow to campaign before Monday's caucuses, then to New, to a New York courtroom on Thursday for his civil fraud trial. Just how intertwined is his legal and political schedule? And they are completely intertwined. But that's also um, something that the campaign has wanted. That's part of their strategy. And look, I think that schedule that you just laid out, Wolf, uh, is a perfect example or preview, I should say, of what we can expect in the months to come of Donald Trump having to flit between the courtrooms and the campaign trail. Um, and look, I think, you know, that New York civil fraud trial on Thursday, just like what I was saying about um, him caring a lot about the arguments uh, today that he made about immunity or his lawyers made about immunity. Donald Trump also very much cares about uh, that civil fraud trial. And so he wants to be there. Again, he doesn't need to be there. But this is something that his team does see as benefiting him uh, politically as well. They think that every time Donald Trump is out there talking about his legal cases, he sees a boost in polling. Uh, they fundraise off of it. Um, and they're really using this as their own political strategy in addition uh, to the legal strategy. Good point. Uh, all right, guys, thank you very, very much. Up next, for months, Donald Trump has dominated state Republican presidential primary polls. But that changed a bit today as a Republican challenger cut into his once very dominant lead in a key state. We're going to break down the exclusive new numbers right after this. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Republican presidential candidates are making their final pitches to Iowa voters with less than six days until the state's all-important caucuses. But severe weather today is forcing some candidates to cancel events. 
CNN's Kylie Atwood is in Des Moines, Iowa for us right now. Kylie, how are the candidates spending these last few days out there on the campaign trail as now all of a sudden severe weather is moving in? Well, listen, Wolf, they're trying to get to as many voters as they can, but it is officially crunch time here in Iowa, and all of the candidates, particularly Nikki Haley, have a lot at stake trying to capitalize on some momentum she's recently seen. Get excited six days until caucus. Nikki Haley welcoming voters who made it through today's Iowa snowstorm to attend her event. Thank you for showing up because I didn't know if we were going to come see five people, but to see a full house really is great. Her momentum growing as she narrows the gap with former President Trump in New Hampshire. Trump at 39 percent and Haley now at 32 percent. Her support grew 12 points from November, the last time the CNN University of New Hampshire poll was last conducted. I will be a president that makes you proud. Some supporters told CNN that they have backed the former South Carolina governor for months and feel she's also picking up new support in Iowa. A lot of them have been undecided when they come in. And after she speaks, you know, they'll kind of look at me and go, yeah, I like her. I think she's the one. So I, th I think it is building. And former Trump supporter Bill Kirk believes that Haley is a safer bet. I don't think he's going to be standing at the end because I think the DOJ is going to take him down. Haley had the campaign trail largely to herself today in the Hawkeye State, with Trump choosing to attend a court case in D.C. to defend his presidential immunity claims instead of courting voters. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis delivering the State of the State speech in Tallahassee. 2024 is going to be a banner year for the free state of Florida. And Vivek Ramaswamy canceling his morning events due to the snow after getting stuck in a snowy ditch returning from campaigning on Monday night. If you can't handle the snow, you're not ready for Xi Jinping. That's my view. That decision after he took swipes at Haley for also canceling an event in the state yesterday because of the winter storm. As Haley's star rises, she's increasingly taking hits from all sides. Nikki would sell you out just like she sold me out. But doubling down on her message that it's time to move on to a new generation of leadership. The only way we're going to win the majority of Americans is if we go forward with a new generational leader that leaves the negativity and the baggage in the past and goes forward with the solutions for the future. And voters saying that they appreciate her positive attitude despite the incoming attacks. Even in her personal comments, she never goes after DeSantis unless it's a response to something that they've done. Uh, very seldom goes after Trump. Um, usually it's about her, what she says, how she'd make the country a better place. That's what I'm looking for in a candidate. Now, today when I spoke with with voters here, Wolf, they told me that they're going to be watching the CNN debate tomorrow night with one of those voters telling me it's high stakes for both Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis saying that neither of them can afford to make a mistake. All right, Kylie Atwood in Des Moines for us. Kylie, thanks very much. I want to discuss with our panel of experts, Ron Bronstein, let me start with you. In our new CNN poll, as you know, from New Hampshire, Donald Trump holds just a seven-point lead over Nikki Haley, 39 to 32 percent. Chris Christie is in third place at 12 percent. Vivek Ramaswamy and Ron DeSantis are in the low single digits. Is New Hampshire unique, or is this now, for all practical purposes, from your perspective, a two-person race? Well, Wolf, I think that Nikki Haley is on a trajectory where after Iowa and New Hampshire, uh, we will feel that she is the most viable remaining alternative to Trump. But she still has a long way to go, even in this poll, to make it a truly competitive 
uh, two-person uh, race. Uh, you know, one thing to note here is that she is beating Trump in this poll by over 40 points among independents and Democrats who can participate in a Republican primary in New Hampshire, but he's still beating her by two to one among self-identified Republicans. And to win a party's nomination, ultimately you have to win the partisans of that party, which suggests to me that if she in fact is running to beat Trump, and there are main questions about whether she is fully committed to doing all that it takes to beat him, she is still going to have to give Republican voters a sharper argument about why they should move away from the former yeah, president. I, th I totally agree. Uh, S.E. Cup, Christie is in third place with 12%. When his supporters are asked about their second choice candidate, nearly two thirds say they would choose Nikki Haley, which would put her potentially in a dead heat with Trump. How much pressure does this put on Chris Christie to actually drop out of the race and hope that his supporters go for Nikki Haley? Look, there are really good arguments um, that consolidating the field, especially with Nikki Haley on the rise and kind of no one else, um, you know, having that kind of momentum, that, that that would certainly help. And Chris Christie dropping out would help Nikki Haley, especially in New Hampshire. That said, anything can happen. Imagine Rhonda Santis wins Iowa, Nikki Haley wins New Hampshire, um, or, or, or second, we're, we're saying wins second place um, in both of those states. Um, South Carolina is kind of up for grabs. Um, a lot could happen. And if I'm Chris Christie, I don't drop out before New Hampshire. I still want to play in this in this race and make my case. And he said from the very outset of his candidacy that he was in it for the long haul. He truly believed that over the course of last year and this year that all of Trump's legal troubles would play out and show even his own supporters that he was just unelectable. Now, so far that hasn't happened, but that was just a little insight into his mindset going into this campaign. Yeah, that's important. Uh, Karen Finney, are you surprised that Nikki Haley has been able to close the gap with Trump despite some recent stumbles, such as her Civil War comments as far as slavery was concerned? Really, I mean, there's a couple of things here I think we have to consider. The electorate in New Hampshire is different than the electorate in Iowa. And so because you do have those moderates and independents and, you know, the voting is a little bit different. So it's not surprising. I think the test for her will actually be if she can do well in New Hampshire, because when we talk about, you know, staying in at the long haul, that takes money. So I think the question for her becomes, can she make an argument to donors to help her stay in the race for the long haul? We know that Trump's goal is to try to shore up the nomination uh, by Super Tuesday. So can she stay in beyond that to really try to challenge him? And as we keep an eye on you know, these legal cases, remember the other thing we are seeing in polling is voters are saying to us, well, maybe I ought to have a plan B just in case. Yeah, that's important as well. Uh, Ron, uh, Donald Trump is facing a lot more criticism today for another controversial remark, this time for saying he hopes the economy crashes. Listen and watch this. We have an economy that's so fragile. And the only reason it's running now is it's running off the fumes of what we did, what the Trump administration. It's just running off the fumes. And when there's a crash, I hope it's going to be during this next 12 months because I don't want to be Herbert Hoover. The one president, I just don't want to be Herbert Hoover. So Ron, have you ever heard a candidate speak like, say anything like that before? 
How many times have we said that, Wolf, on how many subjects with Donald Trump? No, I, I don't think we have. You know, look, the economy is an area of strength for him right now. I mean, consistently in polls, people say they trust Trump more than Biden uh, to handle uh, the economy. And they think that they had more money in their pocket at the end of the week uh, under Trump than they do under Biden. Biden has some tailwinds that are going to help him over the next year in all likelihood. Wages are rising faster than prices now. The Fed is indicating that it's going to cut rates. But it is likely that even if you get to, by, by the time we get to election day, I believe it is still likely that more people will trust Trump than Biden on the economy. Trump's vulnerability, I think, is really what we saw today. I think he is going to rue today. I mean, literally four or five days after Joe Biden gave a speech saying he is a threat to democracy, he was in court with his lawyers making the case that he can assassinate his political rivals and face no criminal consequences unless he is impeached in the House and convicted in the Senate. And that is something that has never happened in U.S. history. The Senate has never voted to convict uh, a president. I mean, he really just wrote a thousand Democratic campaign ads today. And it is striking to me and maybe indicative of the half-hearted nature of this Republican primary race that we haven't heard a peep out of Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis, as far as I know, about this idea that a president could kill his rivals without consequence unless he's impeached and convicted. SC, as you know, the Biden campaign understandably blasted the former president today, uh, writing this, and I'll put it up on the screen. Donald Trump should just say he doesn't give a damn about people because that's exactly what he's telling the American people when he says he hopes the economy crashes. Essie, what's your reaction to Trump's comments? Well, they're really par for the course. Donald Trump is a person who says he loves America and he clearly hates Americans. I mean, you know, whether you're looking at that comment where he hopes the economy crashes when so many Americans are already kind of struggling to pay bills or sending hundreds of Americans, his own supporters, by the way, to jail for convincing them um, to in, embark on an insurrection at the Capitol. I mean, this is not a guy, I think, who loves Americans. I think he loves himself. But Biden can't just run on Trump's comments day to day. He's got to put up an argument about why his economy is good um, and why what he's doing at the border. He's got to be more proactive and less defensive. Karen, do you think these comments uh, could impact Trump's standing with voters in the primary races uh, or the general election for that matter? Well, having gone up against him in 2016, not at all in the primary, because consistently it never has. And you have to be very careful when you're competing against Donald Trump about the attacks day to day, because they can take you off of what your game plan needs to be. Certainly in the right. general election, it, 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 it could. But I think Americans are tuning him out until we get closer to the end because the barrage, I think people are just exhausted by it. Karen Finney, S.E. Cup, Ron Bronstein, guys, thank you very much. This important note, don't miss Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis facing off in the CNN Republican presidential debate moderated by Jake Tapper and Dana Bash. That's tomorrow night, 9 p.m. Eastern, right here on CNN. And just ahead, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Israel today, how he's planning to avoid a wider conflict in the Middle East. The U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Israel today telling the Israeli government Palestinians must be allowed to return to their homes in northern Gaza as soon as conditions allow. He held a series of meetings where the war in Gaza was clearly right at the top of the agenda. CNN International Diplomatic Editor Nick Robertson has the story. 
Such a pleasure to have you in Israel. Meetings. First of all, you're welcome here. Back. Nice to see you. To back, to back. To pressure Israel to better protect Gaza's civilians, saying some progress made. We have an agreement that the UN will now conduct an assessment uh, to determine the conditions necessary for people to be able to move back home. In Gaza, where Israeli officials say the battle tempo easing, the war's effects remain harsh. Nine Israeli troops killed Monday. Dead and wounded Palestinians continue overwhelming hospitals. And as Blinken urged better humanitarian access, needy Gazans stormed food trucks. From his meetings in the region the past week, Blinken set out a path to peace, which so far has been publicly rejected by Israel's government. If Israel wants its Arab neighbors to make the tough decisions necessary to help ensure its lasting security, Israeli leaders will have to make hard decisions themselves. Israel must be a partner to Palestinian leaders who are willing to lead their people in living side by side in peace with Israel. Blinken also saying that Palestinian leaders must reform, a message he said it take to Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas on Wednesday, who appears under increasing pressure to step aside and allow new leadership more palatable to Israel. Blinken, in essence, telling both sides they need to change. No guarantees it's going to happen. Wolf? Nick Robertson in Tel Aviv, thank you very much. Coming up, an ugly, high-profile war of words between one of late-night TV's biggest stars and one of the highest-paid quarterbacks in the NFL. Aaron Rodgers is not, repeat, not apologizing. We'll have the latest. New York Jets quarterback Aaron Rodgers is not backing down in his first public comments one week after baselessly insinuating late-night uh, star Jimmy Kimmel's name might turn up in documents connected to a legally and politically explosive scandal. Brian Todd is monitoring the story for us. Brian, what's the latest? Well, this all emanates from comments that Aaron Rodgers made last week, implying that Jimmy Kimmel might be named in the Jeffrey Epstein documents, which he has not been. Today, the Kimmel-Rodgers feud over all of this took another bizarre and public turn. The NFL's best-known conspiracy theorist doubles down. New York Jets quarterback Aaron Rodgers today refused to apologize to late-night host Jimmy Kimmel for publicly suggesting, without any support, that Kimmel might be named in documents identifying associates of the late accused sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein. Kimmel has not been named in any Epstein documents. Today on ESPN's The Pat McAfee Show, Rogers not only didn't apologize, he denied even implying that Kimmel was in the Epstein documents. As long as he understands what acts he said and uh, that I'm not accusing him of uh, being, uh, being on a list, I'm not stupid enough to accuse you of that with absolutely zero evidence, uh, concrete evidence, it, that's ridiculous. But here is what Rogers said last week about the Epstein documents. A lot of people, including Jimmy Kimmel, are really hoping that doesn't happen. To which Kimmel issued a vehement denial, threatened to sue Rogers, and last night skewered him on his ABC show. Aaron got two A's on his report card. They were both in the word Aaron, okay? <laughs> And Kimmel felt he needed to again counter Rogers' initial insinuation about him being in the Epstein documents. Of course, my name wasn't on it, and 
isn't on it and won't ever be on. I don't know Jeffrey Epstein. I've never met Jeffrey Epstein. I'm not on a list. I was not on a plane or an island or anything ever. Today, Rogers also described the backstory of an ongoing feud, saying Kimmel had mocked him as an Epstein documents conspiracy theorist and anti-vaxxer. He comes out and says that I'm an overly concussed wacko. The host, Pat McAfee, today allowed Rogers to deliver another five minutes of vaccine denialism without a fact check. This adds to a years-long list of controversies Rogers has created for himself, not only going off on conspiracy theories about the COVID vaccine, but also once misleading the public about being vaccinated himself. Yeah, I've been immunized. Rogers later admitted he'd not been vaccinated, that he considered himself immunized by holistic medicine. He blamed others for the brushback he'd received. I realize I'm in the crosshairs of the woke mob right now. One analyst says the four-time NFL Most Valuable Player, one of the most famous athletes on the planet, has a following that makes his remarks even more consequential. All of these things together turn Aaron Rodgers into somebody who's actually kind of dangerous in our society. Not dangerous in a cool way, but dangerous in a way that actually hurts our ability to collectively grapple with the problems that face us. Today, Aaron Rodgers said he wants to put this issue with Kimmel to bed and move forward. He suggested that the media is looking to cancel him, saying that's the, quote, game plan of the media. A spokesperson for ESPN, which televises the Pat McAfee show, declined to comment to CNN about Aaron Rodgers' remarks. Wolf, it's a mess. It certainly is, Brian Todd. Thank you very much. Coming up, today's major test for Donald Trump's claim he's immune for prosecution. What a panel of federal judges thought of the former president's argument. We'll have that right after a quick break. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Happening now, a panel of federal judges appears to take a scalpel to Donald Trump's claims of presidential immunity. The court clearly skeptical of the former president's arguments during a critical hearing. I'll get reaction from Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin. And there's also breaking news out of the Pentagon. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's undisclosed hospitalization now revealed to be the result of complications from prostate cancer surgery. And there's more breaking news we're following. Boeing's CEO acknowledges the company's, quote, mistake during a safety meeting on the Alaska Airlines mid-flight fuselage blowout. We have new details on the investigation. Welcome to our viewers here in the United States and around the world. I'm Wolf Blitzer. You're in the Situation Room. This is CNN Breaking News. First up this hour, Donald Trump's deeply skeptical reception in federal court today as a panel of judges heard his arguments for presidential immunity. Our chief legal affairs correspondent, Paula Reed, is on the story. Good afternoon. Former President Trump traveled to Washington Tuesday to watch arguments in a federal appeals court hearing over whether he should be shielded from criminal prosecution. I feel that as a president, you have to have immunity. Very simple. 
Trump was not required to be in attendance, but was in court to witness the three-judge panel express skepticism of his claim that he cannot be prosecuted for his actions unless he is first impeached and convicted by Congress. Could a president order SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival? That's an official act in order to SEAL Team 6? He, he would have to be and would speedily be, you know, uh, uh, impeached and convicted before the criminal but prosecution. I asked you a yes, no, yes or no question. There is a political process that would have to occur under our, the structure of our Constitution, which would require impeachment and conviction by the Senate in these exceptional cases. Trump's lawyers argued that when trying to overturn the 2020 election, Trump was acting in his official capacity. To authorize the prosecution of a president for his official acts would open a Pandora's box from which this nation may never recover. Trump's lawyer also warned that if this near absolute immunity was not recognized, there could be a possibility of vindictive prosecutions against political rivals. It would authorize, for example, the indictment of President Biden in the Western District of Texas after he leaves office for mismanaging the border, allegedly. The special counsel rejected these arguments, noting that charges were brought in this case because of what they describe as extraordinary conduct. Never before has there been allegations that a sitting president has, with private individuals and using the levers of power, sought to fundamentally subvert the Democratic Republic and the electoral system. And argued that impeachment and conviction through a political process should not be required before a criminal prosecution. I think it would be awfully scary if there weren't some sort of mechanism by which to reach that uh, in, criminally. This court has been working on an expedited schedule, so we should get a decision soon. But whoever loses here will likely appeal to the full appellate court or the Supreme Court. But Wolf, the longer it takes to get a final resolution on this question, the more likely it is that the federal election subversion case will go to trial before November. We will see. All right, thanks very much. Don't go too far away. Also want to bring in uh, our legal experts for some analysis. And Laura Coates, let me start with you. Uh, having heard Trump's arguments in the courtroom today, did the judges have reason to be deeply skeptical? Absolutely. What the Trump team is asking is to have a judicial ruling that a president has absolute immunity for all actions taken while in office. That could not be. They gave him a set of hypotheticals, including, well, hold on a second. You're saying that the only way to do this, the only way to prosecute a former president or a president is, is by having an impeachment and a conviction and only then. And even if it's that, there's official actions that could include things like selling pardons, selling military secrets, ordering team, SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival. They had all these hypotheticals to try to test the limits of this nonsensical argument. And I think that they, they did not make a compelling case at all to the appellate bench today to suggest that absolute immunity is at all warranted. We've got to have some guardrails for there to be, well, not a king in this country. Certainly seemed like those judges were appreciating mm -hmm. that specific point. Andrew McCabe, what did you think that exchange about uh, if, if a president were to order SEAL Team 6 to go ahead and assassinate a political rival? An incredibly vivid and artfully crafted question because it exposes the absurdity of this argument. The fact that a president, I mean, any, any 10 out of 10 people asked in the United States the same question, could it, is it 
ever okay for a president to use the power of government to assassinate a political rival would answer that question resoundingly no, obviously no. And Mr. Trump's lawyer could not say no because of the absurd legal position he's taken in this motion. Uh, so you saw that qualified yes, which clearly didn't seem to satisfy anyone on the panel. Certainly didn't. Uh, Norm Eisen, do you think the judges will reject Trump's arguments? Uh, there can be no question after hearing today's uh, oral argument that Trump's demand for absolute immunity is going to be dismissed out of hand. The most important questions that we have now are how fast will this panel move? Will it be as soon as this week, perhaps on Friday? Will they wait till after the Iowa caucuses do it next week? Uh, what exact contours will their decision take? Will they embrace Judge Chutkin's flat dismissal? Will they put some qualifications on it? There were a lot of bells and whistles that were discussed today, including the question, do they even have the ability to hear this? question before trial. Normally appeals are after trial. That was So there were a lot of those uh, side issues that came up. And then uh, what happens after they rule? Will Trump go for a full en banc review? Will he try to slow things down? That means the entire DC circuit, will they push it away quickly? What will happen at the Supreme Court? Jack Smith has already said he wants it to go fast. Those are the important open questions now. Trump is going to lose. We can very seldom predict with such certainty he is going to lose well, to this. That, to that point, Paula, what happens next? Walk us through what, what is likely to happen in the days ahead. Well, I agree with my distinguished colleague, Norm. I, most people agree it's unlikely Trump is going to prevail here. I also think it's very likely that because the larger strategy here, it's not just about constitutional questions, it's about delaying, trying to kick that federal election subversion trial until after the election, that they would likely ask for this to be heard by the full en banc panel. Who knows if they'll take that up, but then they are likely to go to the Supreme Court. And it is unclear if the Supreme Court would want to wade in here. They already have one hot button Trump issue, the ballot eligibility question that they're going to hear. And they've already declined once to weigh in here and just, you know, give some clarity on this immunity question. So we know for sure that there will likely be appeals. It's unclear, though, if additional courts will take this up. But the bigger question, again, bigger almost than the constitutional question, is the question of timing. We know Trump's strategy is to delay, but Smith is trying to do everything he can to get this case to trial before the election. So Laura, how, how long do you think it'll take for these judges to issue their ruling? Well, if today was any indication, it's not like they already knew what they wanted to do. I have appeared before Judge Pan as a trial attorney and prosecutor many times. She was as really focused and professional and persistent in her questioning as she was there. But look at that list of judges here. You've got two on the left who one of them, including um, Judge Child, was on the short list of potential Supreme Court justice nominations to replace Justice Breyer. You've got Judge Pan, you heard a lot from her today. You hear, of course, Henderson, the person to ultimately decide whether or not you could rebring the Michael Flynn case. You're talking about really, really serious um, judges here. And this is a bench more broadly that has a lot of alum who are current Supreme Court justices, Kavanaugh, Thomas, Roberts, um, you know, the late, RBG and Scalia. This is a bench that knows quite well what could come next and about the entire on-bank process and beyond. But you know what we didn't hear today, which I think is way fascinating? You did not hear them try to decide whether an insurrection was engaged in by Donald Trump. You did not hear them going through the facts of the case to decide whether he was criminally liable or not 
all they wanted to focus on, which is why it's so important. They wanted to focus their attorney, not to go into the politics of Jack Smith. All we want to know about, are you asking us, once you've conceded there are reasons to have a uh, president prosecuted, the only question before them now is, do they actually have absolute immunity? By having that precision and focus, it'll be a short turnaround. Interesting. Uh, Andrew McCabe, you're the former deputy director of the FBI. Walk us through how you see this playing out. Well, I think, uh, I think we've, we've covered exactly procedurally what is likely to happen. I think a request for an en banc rehearing is, uh, is the most likely alternative simply because it, it provides another opportunity to burn time. That requires a majority vote among all the judges uh, in the circuit. It's not clear to me that they will take it. We've got to see if there's an incredibly um, solid, well-argued, expansive opinion that's released with this uh, panel's um, ruling that the en banc uh, request could get turned down, then you're looking at a likely uh, request for certiorari in front of the Supreme Court. But it's an opportunity for this court that's already burdened with politically volatile issues to pass, allowing the, the circuit court um, uh, judgment to, to remain. So um, we'll see. We'll have to wait and see. And Norm, uh, how do you think this... Uh this will, as this plays out, how will it affect the special counsel's case? Well, a lot will come down to whether the Supreme Court says, another hot potato, no thanks, <laughs> cert denied. If they pass on that and the DC circuit goes quickly, I don't think Donald Trump has the votes for an en banc review. He cannot get a majority of the DC circuit that is gonna say, hey, let's add more time. So if that happens, the fastest timeline, we could be back in trial proceedings before Judge Chutkin in uh, sometime in the spring. That March 5th trial is not gonna go on March 5th at this point. Too much delay. My best guess, we're back in trial somewhere in the 60 to 90 day window after March 5th, but so many unknowns. Yeah. We'll be watching closely. Keyword, so many unknowns. Guys, thank you very, very much. To our viewers, an important note, be sure to watch Laura Coates' show, Laura Coates Live, tonight, 11 p.m. Eastern, right here on CNN. Just ahead, the stunning announcement today on Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, hospitalized and battling prostate cancer. A live report on what we know about his condition and who's running the Pentagon. Stay with us. You're in the situation. All right, let's get an update right now. It's some breaking news. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's prostate cancer diagnosis and the new fallout from his undisclosed hospitalization. CNN's Oren Lieberman is over at the Pentagon for us. He's got new details. Oren, what can you tell us? Well, if there were two major questions here about Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin's hospitalization. One was on the medical side, and the other was on the failure to notify President Joe Biden and other senior administration officials. So let's deal with the medical side of that first. There we learned a tremendous amount today. Here's a look at a timeline of the past couple of weeks in terms of Austin's hospitalization. On December 22nd there, he is hospitalized following a diagnosis with prostate cancer. It is caught early. He goes through a, a surgery, a minimally invasive surgery, according to Walter Reed. He 
is under general anesthesia and is released the next day to work from home. On January 1st, he starts to feel some discomfort, including nausea and pain. He is readmitted to Walter Reed Medical Center. According to Walter Reed, he is then transferred one day later to the ICU. This is January 2nd. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs is notified, as is Deputy Defense Secretary Kathleen Hicks, but they're not yet told he is in the hospital. That doesn't happen until you see there, January 4th, that is when Biden is notified, Hicks and then others are notified over the course of the next couple of days, including on January 5th. But only today does the notification come out that he's been diagnosed with prostate cancer. That's when Biden learns, that's when we learn, and the public and other senior administration officials. That, a stunning revelation, because that means that Biden knew he was in the hospital for several days, but didn't find out why. Still, Walter Reed says his, pro uh, his prostate cancer was detected early, and his prognosis is excellent. In terms of when officials found out, here is the Pentagon and the National Security Council. In terms of, of what the elective surgery was and the secretary's condition, um, we're providing that information to you as we've received it. Um, we received that this afternoon and, and we're providing it to you now. It is not optimal, Gabe. Uh, it is uh, for a situation like this uh, to go as long as it did without the commander in chief knowing about it. Not optimal appears to be a bit of an understatement there. The Pentagon has said that Deputy Defense Secretary Kathleen Hicks was transferred the responsibilities at times to make decisions, but again, she too didn't know that Austin was hospitalized for quite some time here. That gets to the question of failure to notify other officials, including the Commander-in-Chief, the President. That responsibility, the Pentagon says, was to the Chief of Staff, uh, Kelly Maximin. She had the flu is the reason being given for her not notifying others, but that still leaves Wolf a tremendous number of questions on why that responsibility wasn't delegated to someone else, like his senior military advisors. There, the Pentagon just says right now, there's a 30-day review that was started yesterday to look at the policies and procedures around notification. And as we learned, the White House has extended that questioning of what are the protocols to other agencies in the government. Yeah, they got to learn the lessons to make sure Absolutely. this doesn't happen again. Orrin Lieberman, thank you very much. Let's discuss the breaking news with CNN medical analyst, Dr. Jonathan Reiner. He's a professor of medicine and surgery at George Washington University here in Washington. So what sort of treatment, Dr. Reiner, do you think Austin will need to undergo right now? And what are the potential, potential problems? Well, first of all, it sounds uh, like uh, the secretary had an abscess form uh, about a week after his surgery. Uh, that would be the fluid that they uh, described that was present in his abdomen, and that would have had to have been drained uh, to help him heal. And then uh, I'm sure he's in the hospital now continuing to receive antibiotics, and whether he'll need antibiotics going forward uh, is unclear. Uh, and then it also depends on... Uh, if there, is, if there are any complications from the urologic surgery itself and, and the prostate healing and his urine flow and, and things like that. But it's important to note that hospitalization is very enervating and takes a lot out of you. And, and the secretary, although he, you know, he looks very robust, is 70 years old. And I tell people that it takes about three times as long to recover from an illness as uh, you spend in the hospital. So if he's in the hospital now for eight days, it could take him a month to recover from this. Really? Yeah complications could be very, very serious too, right? right? We right. don't know. We're watching all of this. Uh, he was readmitted to the hospital, as you know, uh, last week after originally undergoing the surgery to deal with the prostate cancer. So what does that indicate to you? Well, 
it, it, it indicates that he was sick. And uh, more importantly, he was admitted to the intensive care unit, which suggests that he was unstable. And, and you know, the story really starts to fall apart when you think about uh, the Secretary of Defense in an intensive care unit without notifying the rest of the, the chain of command because he would have been uh, potentially unstable. He would have been potentially on pain medication that would have made it very difficult for him to make complex recommendations in a time of a national crisis. So that piece of the story is, is very hard to understand. Well, you have a lot of experience in this area. Do you think he'll be able to fully, fully perform his duties while he's undergoing this treatment? Well, I think if he's no, if he's no longer on pain medication and he's just receiving antibiotics, maybe some physical therapy and just overall resting at home, yeah, then he should you know, be very uh, capable of reading emails and participating in, in conference calls and advising uh, the White House, as long as he's not uh, requiring pain medication. As we know, African-American men mm -hmm. are more likely to get prostate yeah. cancer, right? Yeah. That's a problem. Right, so African-American uh, men are about uh, 1.7 times more likely to develop prostate cancer than, uh, than uh, white Americans, and about 2.1 times more likely to die. So more likely to get it, more likely uh, to die as a consequence of the illness, which is why uh, screening is important uh, for African Americans and all Americans. But the recommendations from the American Cancer Society actually accelerate the time when a person should consider screening uh, from 50 years old to 45 years old for uh, African Americans. And when you say screening, you mean that PSA test? The PSA test. Which is now pretty controversial. It's controversial because the question is, does it does it detect cancers at a, a very early stage that don't need to be treated? So are people who don't need to be treated being treated? And what the American Cancer Society uh, states is that people should discuss this with their physician. That's a good idea. All right, Dr. Reiner, thank you My very pleasure. much for coming in. And we're just about, what, 24 hours away from Republicans facing off right here on CNN for the last debate before the critical caucuses in Iowa. Live report from Iowa. That's coming up next. Only six days until Iowans cast the very first votes in the 2024 presidential election. But only one candidate was out there on the campaign trail today in snow-covered Iowa. CNN's Jeff Zeleny is in Des Moines for us right now. Jeff, Nikki Haley had the campaign trail, I take it, mostly to herself today. Well, she absolutely did, and it is a snow-covered and wind-blown campaign trail, uh, as you might expect in January here in Iowa. But Nikki Haley is trying to ride a bit of a wave of momentum into those caucuses just six days from tonight. And she was campaigning in... Dallas County. It's a critical suburban county just west of Des Moines here. And she was reaching out to those moderate Republicans who she believes may be on her side. Thank you for showing up because I didn't know if we were going to come see five people, but to see a full house really is great. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. I believe President Trump was the right president at the right time. I agree with a lot of his policies, but rightly or wrongly, chaos follows him. You know I'm right. Chaos follows him. And we can't have a country in disarray and a world on fire and go through four more years of chaos. We won't survive it. So, of course, Haley is in a, an aggressive fight with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. They are trying to become the leading alternative to former President Donald Trump. DeSantis, for his part, was in Tallahassee, Florida, delivering a 
a state of the state address in Florida. He flew back this afternoon, arrived a short time ago. He, of course, will be on stage with Haley tomorrow night at our CNN debate. Vivek Ramaswamy, for his part, he was trying to have an aggressive campaign schedule as well. Well, the snow caught up to him. He was unable to get to his events. Uh, so the question is, of course, in these final six days, the weather could have an effect on turnout and organization. Yes, uh, snow is pretty common here, but these cold temperatures coming into next week, we're talking zero as a high, certainly could impact the organization and turnout of all the candidates. But for now, at least, there's aggressive phone banking underway, trying to convince some of those undecided voters and even the decided voters that their votes are needed. So, Wolf, six days before the Iowa caucuses, uh, this is really going to set the pace and perhaps the duration of the Republican nominating fight. Yeah, Jeff Zeleny, try to stay warm over there. Thank you very much. Meanwhile, in New Hampshire, another early critical state, a new CNN poll shows Nikki Haley's support has grown dramatically, cutting Donald Trump's lead down to single digits for the first time. Since CNN's last New Hampshire poll back in November, the former U.S. ambassador to the U.N. has jumped, look at this, 12 percentage points up to 32 percent, meaning she now trails Trump by only seven percentage points. Let's bring in our experts to discuss what's going on. David Chalian, you're our political director. What do these new New Hampshire poll results say to you about the state of the GOP race, at least in New Hampshire? Well, they say that momentum that we've been talking about related to Nikki Haley's candidacy for the last couple months, Wolf, is still very much apparent in New Hampshire. And I think it's so specific uh, that this is about New Hampshire, because I think there's a different structure to the race. And you could see it inside these numbers. Nikki Haley's rise that you just talked about is largely due to her support with moderate Republicans, with independents who say they're going to participate in the Republican primary. Donald Trump is still dominant in the Granite State, Wolf, with uh, conservatives with registered Republicans. And it is not everywhere that Nikki Haley is going to have that kind of opportunity uh, to pull in independence. They can't participate when there are closed primaries. So New Hampshire is particularly fertile ground with her. And she's hoping to make some magic happen here in Iowa to bounce into New Hampshire and actually close that gap, that single digit gap that we show in our new poll. Yeah, Alyssa Farrah Griffin is with us as well. Alyssa, despite Haley closing the gap, there is some good news for Trump in this new poll. 80% of Trump supporters say they're definitely decided uh, on their vote compared with 54% of Haley supporters. This is a key advantage clearly for Trump. Can Haley overcome it? Listen, Wolf, there is a real GOP primary. And if you'd asked me even a couple months ago, I would say it's Donald Trump's to take. But Nikki Haley has run a smart and effective campaign. She's still very much playing in Iowa. She's working the caucus game. She's got a ground game there. And she understands even just coming in second place would be a huge boon to kind of narrow and say, I am the alternative to Trump. But what New Hampshire voters are really focusing on, she's got the backing of highly popular Governor Chris Sununu. But this open question of what does Chris Christie do? Chris Christie has been the anti-Trump candidate from the outset. He's got an over 10-point lead, but there really is no path for him beyond New Hampshire. So there's this pressure around him to maybe step out and endorse Haley. But so far, that's not materialized. I'll be very curious to see what, what conversations happen in the weeks ahead. Yeah, good point. Uh, Van Jones, how much would a Haley upset win, win, not coming in second, but win in New Hampshire, how much would that shake up the race? I mean, it, it would shake it all up. I mean, par part of uh, what has to happen is somebody has to actually believe that Donald Trump can be beaten. 
you know, he, he just seems to be this steamroller no matter what happens. You know, you're throwing indictments at him. You're, do, you're throwing a kitchen sink at him. You're throwing banana peels on the sidewalk, marbles on the stairs. He just keeps coming and keeps coming. So if somebody stops him, it just changes the entire uh, equation of what's even possible in American politics, even if it happens just one time. And so uh, I think we're looking at something, you know, if anybody can stop him, it looks like it's going to be Nikki. Uh, if she pulls it off, it'll be uh, it'll be one for the record books. We'll see what happens. Uh, David, you're there in Iowa for our CNN debate tomorrow night between Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. Who is most in need of a standout performance? Well, they both need the attention. They both need positive reviews because Donald Trump is still the dominant force, not just here in Iowa, but even with what we're talking about in New Hampshire, he is the dominant force in the nomination race. But Ron DeSantis, Wolf, particularly, has invested so much time in the state of Iowa. He's really put all the marbles on this first kickoff state. And so he's looking to make sure that he uses the debate tomorrow night, this moment before Iowa Republican caucus go before they head out Monday night to the caucuses to start closing the sale and actually solidifying what he hopes will be a closer-than-expected second-place showing. Alyssa, Nikki Haley has done well, as we all know, in past debate performances. What are you looking for from her tomorrow night? I think Nikki Haley really needs to lean into the electability argument. The, the one thing the GOP field agrees on is they want to defeat Joe Biden. In consecutive poll after consecutive poll, Nikki Haley performs best head-to-head -head against Joe Biden, and some beating him by as many as 16 points. Whereas Ron DeSantis, who is popular in Iowa, um, he at times is even even loses to Joe Biden in a general election. So I think she's going to hammer home. You know, if you're actually wanting to win the general, not just the primary, I am the best candidate to do it. You know, Van, uh, Ron DeSantis is polling in our last poll at just 5% in New Hampshire. How much does this raise the stakes for him to do well in Iowa? Well, I mean, if he doesn't do well in Iowa, it's over for him. I mean, he's, you know, as I just said, I mean, he put, he's put all his cards on the table there. Um, and he's, you know, he's not doing as well as you, as you would have expected, especially when you think about where he was six months ago, nine months ago. So he's, he's, got, he's got to do well uh, in Iowa. You know, the debate is go tomorrow night is going to be critical. Um, if, if Nikki Haley has a tendency, as good as she is, she puts her foot in her mouth sometimes, and she puts, starts tickling her tonsils with her toes. Stop doing that. You can't. You got to go in there, and you got to stay on message and do a good job, and don't give people three or four days to beat you up afterwards, uh, Nikki Haley. Um, and, and DeSantis has been getting better and better and better. Uh, and in these debates and these town halls. And so we're going to see now a truly mature matchup between two people who could be the future of the, of the party, whether, no matter who wins this actual primary. Yeah, these next few days will be critical. David, give me a, a final thought. Well, listen, the, the, the mission here is quite clear for both DeSantis, Haley, but also for Chris Christie, Vivek Ramaswamy. This is the moment if you're going to alter the trajectory and try to stop Trump, you've got to make a dent. If Donald Trump gets a big victory in Iowa on Monday, followed by a significant victory in New Hampshire on Tuesday, this nomination process could wind down real quickly with Donald Trump as the likely nominee. We'll see what happens. All right, guys, thank you very, very much. And this important note, don't miss Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis facing off in the CNN Republican presidential debate moderated by our own Jake Tapper and Dana Bash. That's tomorrow night, 9 p.m. Eastern, right here on CNN. Just ahead, there's breaking news we're following right now. Boeing CEO acknowledges the company's mistakes 
during a safety meeting today, and he addressed employees in the aftermath of the mid-flight blowout on one of its planes. We're following breaking news right now. Boeing CEO addressing the company's employees today for the first time since that terrifying mid-flight blowout on one of its 737 MAX 9 planes used by Alaska Airlines. CNN Aviation correspondent Pete Montine is following the story for us tonight. What are we learning, Pete? Well, Wolf, Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun says the company is acknowledging its mistake. That, and it just released excerpt from the company's all-hands safety meeting today. Here is the issue. Calhoun did not say exactly what that mistake is, if anything. And now investigators are scrambling to get to the bottom of it. After Friday's dramatic in-flight blowout, significant new findings by investigators and airlines are putting the spotlight on bolts in the Boeing 737 MAX 9 designed to hold the part that ripped off in place. Known as a door plug, the National Transportation Safety Board now says it blew out and up, triggering what investigators call a chaotic and loud explosive decompression. Alaska. In prepping their planes for FAA-mandated emergency inspections, Alaska Airlines and United Airlines both report issues with door plugs on an undisclosed number of now-grounded MAX 9s. Alaska says mechanics found some loose hardware was visible. United says it found possible door plug installation issues and bolts that needed additional tightening. Now, investigators are searching for the door plug bolts from Friday's incident, potentially key evidence. We have not yet recovered the four bolts uh, that restrain it from its vertical movement, and we have not yet determined if they existed there. A MAX 9 door plug is secured by high air pressure inside the plane, pushing 12 tabs on the door against matching tabs on the plane's frame. A total of four bolts at the top and bottom of the door can be removed for maintenance, but without them, the door could slide out of place. By design, if the bolts are there, it prevents the door from translating upwards and disengaging from the stop fittings and flying off the plane. Early reads from Alaska 1282's flight data recorder detail that cockpit alarm sounded, followed by the door plug blowout one minute later. This was a really significant event. It was terrifying. The NTSB says it has reached out to Spirit Aerosystems. That is the Boeing contractor that builds the MAX 9 fuselage. Those planes remain grounded until airlines can inspect them. Airlines are waiting on inspection details from the FAA, and the FAA says it's now reviewing inspection guidance from Boeing. Alaska Airlines says it canceled 109 flights today. As a result, at United, 170 flights canceled. Wolf. Pete Montine reporting for us. Thank you, Pete, for that update. Coming up, Donald Trump's claims of presidential immunity face a stiff test in a federal appeals court here in Washington. I'll get reaction from a lawmaker who served on the January 6th Select Committee and helped lead Trump's impeachment. Congressman Jamie Raskin is standing by live. More now in our top story this hour, today's critical hearing over Donald Trump's claims of presidential immunity. I want to bring in Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland. He served on the January 6th Select Committee. Congressman, thanks so much for joining us. You also led Trump's second impeachment after January 6th. He was acquitted in the Senate, but Trump's lawyer conceded today Trump could be prosecuted if he had been convicted. What did you make of that? 
Um, well, the, the uh, presentation in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals before the three-judge three panel was astounding. Um, Donald Trump and his lawyers essentially asserted that the president has the right to assassinate people, to kill people, um, without uh, any prospect of prosecution unless they're first uh, impeached by the House and convicted in the Senate. And of course, as a, a member of Congress, my first thought was, well, then if the president is going to order out for the assassination of his political rivals and say there's a narrow margin in the Senate of a two or three vote in the opposition party, um, what's to keep him from murdering members of the Senate to make sure that he doesn't get convicted there in order to deny a two-thirds majority? He could kill them and then uh, he can't be impeached or convicted because he's murdered his opposition and he can't be prosecuted for it because he hasn't been impeached or convicted. Now, of course, Trump's argument is utterly ludicrous. Nobody's ever even attempted uh, such an absurd argument in American history, but it shows you how outlandish and deranged uh, Donald Trump's worldview is at this point. And it's very dangerous because all of it revolves around political violence. The three federal judges were clearly skeptical of Trump's arguments, even calling them paradoxical. Do you think they will reject his immunity bid? Yes, I think that this claim that the president is immune for crimes that he commits in office, unless he's first impeached or convicted, um, it will be rejected probably unanimously by this three-judge panel um, and certainly overwhelmingly by the D.C. Circuit. I mean, if you think about it, what he's saying is that a president could order out assassinations for any political rivals or journalists or citizens he doesn't like. Uh, he can uh, steal money from the government. He can take money, millions of dollars from foreign governments. And then uh, if the House moves to impeach him, he can simply resign because, of course, their argument there is if the president is no longer president, he's no longer subject to impeachment proceedings or trial, which was uh, why Mitch McConnell voted not to acquit him, but not to convict him in the end. He said that Donald Trump was actually factually morally responsible for inciting a violent insurrection against the union, but he asserted that the Senate didn't have jurisdiction to hear the case because Trump was no longer in office. That argument was flawed. I think it cut against two centuries of precedent, but in any event, he wasn't saying Donald Trump wasn't guilty. He was saying that Donald Trump would get off on a technicality, um, and Donald Trump is saying if you can get off on a technicality, you can get away with murder. I want you to put on your hat as a former professor of law at the American University Law School here in Washington. This case could ultimately end up, as you know, Congressman, before the U.S. Supreme Court. What's at stake here when it comes to presidential power and the rule of law? Well, Donald Trump is asserting the powers of a dictator. His heroes, of course, are Vladimir Putin and President Xi and Orban and the advocates of illiberal democracy, meaning democracy without freedom that is elections, rigged elections without freedom for the people. Um, it's really our form of government. It's constitutional democracy. I mean, our framers rebelled against monarchy in the idea that the king can do no wrong, but that's essentially the jurisprudence of Donald Trump, that the president cannot be guilty if he's president of anything. And now today we learn even of political assassinations. So this cuts completely against the meaning of our constitution and our entire history. And I, I would hope that all nine justices, even those who are compromised in some way, uh, would reject this argument. And I hope it would uh, have even the most sycophantic 
uh, Trump followers on the court look seriously, perhaps for the first time, at the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment argument because Donald Trump is behaving in such a way these days that he's indicating nothing would stop him from trying to engage in another insurrection or coup or rebellion against the Union. And I hope they take seriously the literal language, the straightforward text of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment and the original purposes of the 14th Amendment, which were to say, if you've disqualified yourself by engaging in insurrection or rebellion, you can never serve in office again. You can vote, you can be a free person, you can be at large, but thank you, we'll find somebody else to be president of the United States. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. I, I'm sure you, uh, like me, have never heard arguments like this before in a federal courtroom. Congressman Jamie Raskin, thank you so much for joining us. Coming up. An update on severe weather right now across the country. A live report from Florida, where tornadoes ripped through the panhandle. Right now, we're tracking a major winter storm slamming the central and eastern United States. That storm spawning severe weather and tornadoes in the south, including damaging twisters in South Carolina and the Florida panhandle. Let's get the very latest from CNN meteorologist Derek Van Dam. He's joining us from Panama City Beach in Florida. Derek, I, I understand the damage is already very extensive. Yeah, here's an example of that, Wolf. What you're looking at behind me over my right shoulder is a house that was toppled by the wind, just like a large tree uh, in powerful winds. But this one is being supported by its neighboring home. This is just a drop in the bucket of the damage that we've witnessed here within Panama City Beach as over a dozen tornadoes tore through the southeastern U.S., over 170 reports of severe wind gusts. Uh, it was a morning and day full of terror for these people because uh, what you're witnessing behind me is uh, just simply incredible, hard to put into words as well. But the threat is not done, even though the severe weather is slowly starting to wane. What we're focusing now is on the wind threat and the potential for flash flooding overnight. So uh, you get to my graphics and you'll see just this available, what we call an atmospheric river of moisture that is pluming into the East Coast. And uh, with this could bring up to two to four inches of rain on an area that's already experienced snowfall within the past storms just earlier last week. And so that will quickly allow for rapid melting, rapid rises in our rivers and the flash flooding uh, there. You can see the warnings on our map that encompass much of the entire eastern seaboard. Now, wind gusts tonight, we need to take this seriously because they are starting to ramp up even across the Outer Banks at the moment. But uh, we have over half of the United States under some sort of wind alert. But focusing in on the East Coast, we could experience hurricane force wind gusts across parts of the mid-Atlantic coast and into southern New England as well. That's something we need to take seriously. And I can report, Derek, heavy rain already here in Washington, D.C. and the entire metropolitan area. We're watching that very, very closely. Uh, lots going on in the weather front. Derek, thanks very much for that update. And to our viewers, thanks very much for watching. I'm Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. Aaron Burnett out front starts right now. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.